Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Making a difference in the world, living more sustainably, and driving better business practices. It's the change we all want to see. Imagine combining that with a free, fully funded master's degree and a generous tax-free bursary. Board Bia Talent Academy is giving you an opportunity that could change the course of your career. In partnership with UCD Michael Smurfit Graduate Business School, we're now enrolling for two programs. The Origin Green Ambassador Program, focus on sustainability, and the Supply Chain and Procurement Program, focus on commercial food and drink buying. Applications close on May 14th. For more details, visit boardbia.ie slash talentacademy. Welcome to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I'm Jerry Scott, Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent, and it's been another crazy week for political news. As I speak to you, I've moved house this week, so I'm surrounded by boxes in this work from home world that we now live in. Um, but I'm going to be joined today by Joe Grady, who is the General Secretary of the University and College Union. As you'll all be very aware, universities and colleges have been under a lot of pressure during the pandemic. We had the A-level saga over the summer and now as students are going back uh, to universities or have gone back even, we're now kind of seeing the consequences and results of that and fears that as we're in this second lockdown, students will really start heading home and dropping out of university. So Jo's got loads to tell us about that and she also grew up in Wakefield. So tells us really about how her childhood in Yorkshire inspired her to get into the career that she's in today. So let's hear from Jo now. Right. Hi, Jo. Thank you so much for coming on Pod's Own Country. How are you doing? Uh, well, thank you. Well, as well as we all can be at this time. How are you? I know. Yeah, I'm not too bad. Thank you. I think as, so as we're speaking, um, as this goes out, we'll be kind of a week into this second national um, national lockdown. How did you... How did you spend the first lockdown, you know, the one we saw earlier this year? How was how was that spent for you? Lots of work, I imagine. Lots of work, yeah. I mean, we were busier than I think perhaps we've ever been. UCU represents educational professionals in post-16 education, so colleges, university, adult ed, prisons. Um, it was all hands on deck. It was bananas. Absolutely. And are you expecting the same this time around as well? Is it ramping up already? I suppose it hasn't been quiet at all. It's never been quiet, no, but um, unfortunately for us, we think that the, the government in Westminster have made some bad calls in terms of keeping in-person activities open, particularly in universities. Um, so we've got lots of kind of 
issues on the ground, really, in terms of keeping everybody safe. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I want to get into all that coronavirus stuff in a bit, but start off if I want to talk about you a bit, which I know makes people a little bit uncomfortable sometimes, but I'm sorry, we're going to make you do it. Um, because you grew up in Wakefield, right? Am I correct in saying? I did. I grew up at the in a, at the bottom of Westcott in Wakefield. Ah, <laughs> oh, how interesting. I see. Well, I guess, I mean, how long, how long have you been heading up the UCU now as, as we speak? So I became General Secretary of UCU in May um, 2019, and I took office in August 2019, actually on Yorkshire Day. Wow. <laughs> uh, so I've been, I've been there over, over a year, getting on for a year and a half. So what was your path from growing up, like you say, in Wakefield to where you are now? I mean, I know that's, that seemed like maybe a long story, but what, what the, are kind of the key points of what got you from there to where you are now? Um, so I grew up in Wakefield. Uh, my mum and dad had the Waterloo pub at the bottom of Westcott, so I grew up in a mm-hmm. pub. Um, I went to St Thomas of Beckett School in Wakefield. I went to Wakefield College. I was the first of my family to do A-levels and I had some really great teachers there who um, encouraged me to apply to go to university, which I did. Oh. I was the first in my family to go to university. Uh, I went to the University of Lancaster. Um, obviously the wrong side of the Pennines as my dad <laughs> um, <laughs> it rained all the time as well the rumors are true um, and um, I, I really loved it and I, um, I really enjoyed university and again I was the beneficiary of some really good teachers who encouraged me to stay on and do what I didn't even know existed at the time which is called postgraduate study I didn't mm. know that there was sort of multiple levels of study at uni that you know that was just my level of knowledge at the time and um, I got help from this person to help me um, apply for a scholarship. So I basically was offered free postgraduate education at university. And from the kind of background I'm from was like, who is going to turn that down? Yeah, absolutely. Um, God, yeah. So I, um, I sort of went straight from A-levels to a degree, to doing a master's, to doing a PhD. And I loved it. And um, I was immediately after my scholarship ended I applied for a job at the University of Leicester um, and at the age of 25 became a lecturer um, in industrial relations so kind of in the study of labour history sociology of work um, and really really enjoyed it and was always a really active member of my trade union UCU mm-hmm. um, I was born during the minor strike so I kind of had a quite a political kind of trade union education throughout my life so it was just a natural thing I would join my, you know, sectors trade union, um, yeah. and then one led one thing led to another, and um, in 2019 I decided to run for general secretary of UCU, and I I got elected with a landslide. Incredible! Wow, what a what a kind of journey you've you've been on. I mean, I'm really interested in that bit about you kind of saying that you know you born grew up during minor strikes and stuff like that. Is that where? And your dad was a miner, wasn't he as well? Yeah. Yeah. So is that where your kind of, you know, passion, do you think, for, for you know, your industry comes from? Um, so I was born in 1984. I was born in April. So, you know, there's there's no sort of pretend memories on my behalf of, of the minor strike. I was obviously a, a, a tiny baby. Um, but the household that I grew up in, and I think growing up in Wakefield as well, in the sort of the legacy of the 1980s, um, the bad years in the 90s of, um, of the Tory government, you... Um, 
you kind of can't help but ignore uh, what politics has on a on a micro level every day to people. Um, mm-hmm. I grew up with a real kind of political nous and compass for right and wrong and how we should treat people and also the extent to which political and economic decisions aren't just, you know, um, things that dangle above us. They actually have real life consequences for people. Um, I, even if I just think about little day-to-day things, so my school that I went to when I was little is um, English Martyrs in Wakefield, mm-hmm. and it borders um, one of Wakefield's council estates, which is called Lupsit. And um, sometimes the way we would go home from school would be to cut through Lupsit if, like, um, Harbury Road or Jewsbury Road was busy. And I always remember thinking, these are really nice houses. You know, they've got big gardens, there's, like, big green spaces in between some of the roads. Um, like why is it seen to be um, embarrassing to live here or why is it that um, there's a kind of a stigma with living here Um, and they're just sort of like little questions that don't make sense to a child Um, you know why are things bad for some people and not others I remember and I'm sure this is common for loads of kids at school we would have non-uniform day Mm, and you you pay a pound um not to wear your uniform and I went to a Catholic school so we raised money for CAFOD and um there were kids every now and again at our school who couldn't afford to pay the pound um to not wear their uniform um there was a girl who we went to school with who um when all of her brothers got knits everybody had their head shaved and she did too (gasps) And oh, it's little God. stuff like that, yeah, as a kid. And you're like, why is this happening? Like, why did that happen to that person? Why does that boy get bullied at school because his mum can't afford a pound for him to wear his own clothes like everybody else? Mm-hmm. Um, and it sort of sounds a bit of a grand thing to say. Now I'm a, like, you know, a grown woman at 36. But I think you ask your parents for, for answers to why those things happen to some kids and not you. And I think I was very, you know, kind of lucky that my parents gave me really informed answers about, well, actually, some things are unfair, but they don't have to be. And this is why. So sorry, this is a really long winded way of explaining that I think um, I think I just grew up with quite a sharp understanding that we're not just all um, sort of players in some lottery of life, Mm. but the opportunities and life chances are delivered um, in an unequal way way but that that doesn't have to be that way um and I think for me my unexpected route into education in higher education in universities meant that I could teach people but then I really enjoyed and thought that organizing and educating through trade union activities is sort of equally just as important just a different way of reaching out to people so um yeah absolutely and obviously there's no need to apologize for a long-winded answer because I think that's (laughs) I think that's so interesting in understanding the kind of, you know, context that what everything we're going to talk about today is set in. And I, I'm I'm always so interested to hear from, you know, people in all, all walks of life about how their kind of upbringing often shapes what they do in their future. And I think it's so um, kind of integral to who we are as people, what happens mm-hmm. to you as a child as well. So I think that's really, really interesting. Um, I guess... I'm interested in that notion of unfairness that you picked up on as a child and have taken into your adult life. Where do you see that unfairness 
today is it is it similar levels of unfairness that you see has it got worse has it got better is it just different what where do you see unfairness today I mean I think the response to this pandemic has really revealed that unfairness and inequality are kind of woven through every fabric of our society but also Mm -hmm. um, unfairness and inequality is maintained by choices um, I think one really easy example for anyone who'd be listening to understand is what happened with the, with the A-levels in August. Yeah. So despite months of warning um, from UCU, from the National Union of Students, from other educational groups, um, that the algorithm that the government had developed would lead to um, skewed results, would lead to the baking in and hardwiring of inequality and of unfair outcomes. They went ahead and did it. You know, they, they stood by their, their guns. They saw what happened in Scotland, but the Westminster government, you know, were, were like, no, we're not U-turning, we're doing this. Um, and they knew that, therefore, based on your socioeconomic privilege, you know, based on where you live and the postcode of your house and your school, you would either get a leg up or uh, you would get pushed down. And they were mm-hmm. comfortable with that. And the only thing that uh, changed their mind was that, 18 year olds uh, took to the streets, um, you know, took to online, um, articulated their case very well in various media interviews and and really exposed like the grisly um, inequality that the government were more than happy to have um, implemented. And um, I think the reason that trade unionism, but sort of community activism more broadly is important to me is that nothing that has ever been achieved in the last decade two decades century has been achieved because politicians have given it to people it's been because people have demanded better um and i think that what we're looking at right now in the uk uh, particularly in england is a government really trying to promote a regressive agenda you know if we think about the furlough scheme so we know that rishi sunak's just extended it he extended it a day after, you know, it had ended for lots of people. People had lost their jobs. People had been made redundant. People had been made to get by on 80% of their salary despite having 100% of their outgoings. Um, it doesn't have to be this way. You know, we're the, I think we're the fifth richest country in the world. So, yeah, it's about inequality, but it's also about unfairness and the extent to which some people are just supposed to be the endless shock absorbers for unfairness and also as opposed to sort of somehow shoulder the burden of that responsibility when they're trying as hard as they can and working as hard as they can. Um, but we've got a government that just seemed wedded to a really unfair agenda. Absolutely. And that was something, wasn't it? You, you know, you spoke about the whole A-level debacle there, and it was heartbreaking for so many students. I imagine it was pretty heartbreaking for a lot of your members as well, because they work with these I was going to say kids, but often not kids every day to kind of they see how hard they work and the struggles that they face. What were you hearing at the time from from members on the ground? I imagine they were distraught. Absolutely. So I'll probably split UCU members into kind of two categories here because you've got the the members that work in further education colleges and then the Uh members that work in higher education institutions and obviously the FE um, crowd. They're the ones, as you say, that had worked with these young adults, worked with these kids two years you know know them inside out probably know what troubles they've had to go through um and knew they were on for really good grades 
and then literally just because of the postcode of where the school is or the college is and the past performance of that college saw their kids get downgraded and I remember speaking to one of our members who teaches at Blackburn College and all of the kids who were supposed to get A's had been downgraded and she was just like this makes me sick they have been given a grade because of where they went to college not because of who they are Mm -hmm. so I think for the buns um, who work in colleges um, that was the sort of misery that they were having to deal with and the complete um, trauma really of what was happening to students and then obviously the ones who work in in higher education who it's a big lot of work before students turn up at university to allocate everyone a place to make sure as we were being told to do at the time that universities could be covid safe and the government just delivered chaos to everyone whether it was fe teachers or or he staff about how we were going to accommodate you know an entirely predictable and avoidable meltdown (laughs) nobody has had any rest this summer it's been burnout overwork and the entire thing has been because the government just hasn't delivered any stability to the education sector whatsoever. Absolutely. And I think it's really interesting to hear that from kind of, like you said, both sides, the the, Hefe, the FE and then the HE side, because, you know, there's been so much, we've heard so much about students quite rightly on both, yeah, like you say, A-levels and the university side over this and how they've been affected, but also, yeah, that impact on staff who I imagine have had to, completely adapt to the way they teach and things like that I I am um, I mean really I'm far too old to spend my time on things like TikTok if I'm honest but I uh, <laughs> no one's too old for TikTok <laughs> <laughs> but I do anyway and there's actually been a lot of really um I guess heartbreaking stuff on there recently about kind of lecturers asking their students to turn their cameras on so they feel like they're actually talking to people rather than a blank screen and things like that I imagine it's been quite a quite a step change for a lot of a lot of um, the kind of staff that you represent has it yeah I mean it has obviously for, for some teaching staff uh, virtual learning distance learning is, is what they specialize in but yeah mm. for most people it's in-person classroom delivery and what happened in March was a shock for everyone um, you know and everyone had to adapt very quickly um, and we weren't given the support we needed um, mainly from, from a lot of employers and from the government, um, whether that's even just technology, equipment to use, um, you know, breathing space and time to actually make sure we're giving proper pastoral support to students in addition to teaching. You know, you think about the infrastructure we have in this country, sort of FE and adult learning um, and the extent to which everybody was just at home over the summer. Mm. Um, there was a real opportunity that I just think was squandered by this government to properly invest. Like we were campaigning for £2.5 billion of funding, which might sound like a lot, but the government's wasted £12 billion on a track and trace with Serco that doesn't work. Mm. We were asking for £2.5 billion to be injected into the sector. It would have meant that nobody would have lost their job during this period, that funding would have been maintained, that you know any lost income would have been underwritten. And, and they didn't do that and I raise this because we're not going to be out of this pandemic anytime soon um education is going to be central to any recovery but also it's really foolish that we are still wedded to a fees-based model in a time when I think a lot of people who are going to be stuck at home would benefit from access to education Mm -hmm. lots of adult learners uh, people who may have been made redundant or on furlough could be accessing online courses 
Um, and instead, the government haven't injected any money into funding education properly. And also, we've got teachers who are burnt out trying to deliver in-person activities where safe or where it's been deemed safe, but also online activities and who are just being stretched really, really thin. So, you know, the entire system is is so close to breaking point and so many staff and members that, that UCU represents, you know, are, are reporting being incredibly stressed, burnt out, or, you know, have already been to their GP to be signed off sick because they just kind of can't cope with the relentless demands um, that are being placed on them by their employers and the government, but what not being listened to when they're trying to give constructive input into how we might better organise education in this moment. Mm-hmm. And I'm so interested in that, in that idea that you're talking about there about, you know, people who may have unfortunately <clears throat> lost their jobs or need to retrain kind of accessing this, this education from home, if possible. I mean, I've, I'm interested to know your thoughts on this. Do you think it was kind of right, I guess, that universities opened in the same way in, you know, September that students travelled across the country and, and went back? Or 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 should it, should it really have been more of a focus on, yeah, maybe people staying at home and, and learning from home? So it, I should be really clear, um, the August bank holiday earlier this year, um, UCU did announce that we were requesting the government and universities to not invite or bring students back to campus Uh we we did make some um definitions to sort of separate lab-based teaching and some kind of teaching that had to be in person it wasn't just sort of a blanket no return to in person Um, but on the whole we said you know there is just not a requirement for these activities that can be done remotely and we made that call to government and universities on the basis that we didn't have this is back in august a functioning track and trace system that we didn't have um, you know, sufficient testing on university campuses. And we warned that the, you know, the mass movement of over a million students without any attempt to monitor them out of lockdown city into lockdown city would lead to uncontrollable outbreaks. And we issued that warning. And obviously we're all sat in a lockdown and we know it was ignored. Um, the big peaks and outbreaks we see in Manchester, Liverpool, Newcastle, Sheffield, um, from our own monitoring tool, we think we can trace them back to universities starting to reopen. We think it would have been much better for students' education to just have one stable mode of delivery, which would have been online during this period. And instead, what we've seen is, you know, particularly in the case of first years, because I, I, you know, I accept this isn't the case for all students in second and third year who might be in you know, households with people who they know and love and have been friends with, years but for those first years who had already had their education disrupted by um, the pandemic in March who had had an awful August because of the A-level fiasco you know who were tempted back to campus with the promise of a normal student experience you know some of those students have found themselves kind of literally locked down in their halls since September with dire consequences for their mental well-being and we just don't think that the, the promise of what is normally very limited in-person contact time in the classroom you know often under kind of almost like Victorian teaching conditions everybody socially distanced everybody facing the front everybody with a mask you know so this isn't the kind of interactive education that you might expect at university it's very kind of regimented and disciplined Mm. we just think it would have been so much better for the students to have been able to remain somewhere safe Um, so much better from a public health point of view Um, so much better economically because we might have been able to avoid um, lockdowns 
um, but also better educationally because it would have required investment in the sector, but it would have meant a real, you know, all hands on deck um, effort to put things online in a sustainable and, and kind of stable way. And instead, we've had people cycling in and out of self-isolation, maybe being able to access one in-person session, but then finding out someone's been in contact with someone with COVID in that session and therefore everyone to go back into self-isolation. It's been a complete disaster, but it was completely predicted. So I wonder if this links to what we were talking about just a minute ago about kind of being reliant on this fees system, because you can imagine a situation, can't you, where if everything was kind of online and there wasn't that university experience, that students would arguably quite legitimately say, well, I'm not paying £9,000 a year for that. But I suppose it sounds like what what you're saying is if that kind of fee system was overhauled, that wouldn't have been an issue that was that was on the table. So I would argue that a bad funding regime in the UK led to bad decisions this year, uh-huh. led to decisions um, that led to the government having no other option than to encourage universities to promise students an in-person experience that was never going to be possible, uh-huh. so that they didn't have to underwrite the lost income to do with fees, accommodation, and you know all of the other consumer activities that sprung up in university cities that rely on students, and that's the that's the stark reality of it. That um, uh, reluctance um, to fund universities properly, even during a pandemic, which has been based on years and years and years, you know, predating the Conservative Party. You know, New Labour did this as well, of ensuring a more kind of marketized fees regime in the UK meant that our university system was completely exposed to COVID in a way that other university systems in other European countries have not been. And the consequences were um, bringing students back to campuses that were always going to be incubators of um, the virus and has meant that, you know, we've got thousands and thousands of young people trapped in halls of residence um, and as it stands with no clear roadmap for how they might be returned home. So unlike the rest of us who were diligently being asked to stay at home for four weeks and and prevent the spread of the virus, um, students and their staff in universities have been told to continue with in-person activities. So still getting on the bus, still, you know, meeting in classrooms, still doing things that, you know, we believe lead to the spread of the virus. So unless the government changed their mind, we're going to get to the 2nd of December and we'll still be in a position where students won't be allowed to return home without risking potentially transmitting the virus with them. We just think it's so foolish and we we, we can't really understand why, why they're not being prioritised in this moment. Mm, absolutely. And it's, it's interesting that you say kind of trapped on campus because we are, well, I, I, as I understand it, they're coming down now, but we've seen over the last kind of week or so that these fences have been put up in Manchester haven't they around some student accommodation blocks that that literally have trapped people on campus and it's not the student experience anyone was expecting I imagine or like you say that's that's been sold to them but we were kind of chatting a bit before we hit record and you were saying you know this isn't these aren't really new issues it's just that the pandemic has exposed them yeah I mean the um the fence issue that you refer to is at the Fallowfield Halls of Residence in Manchester, which um, was one of the first major outbreaks of COVID 
mm. among students. I think it was in in the media a lot in September. Um, a student has tragically died there in the intervening mm. period. Part of the student protests against this fence going up wasn't just about being locked in. I think if you speak to most people, they understand the need for a lockdown. So the, the you know the protest wasn't a protest about lockdown. It was a protest about their concerns being ignored by the university about their mental well-being being ignored by the university um and i think you know if you want if you want to understand why in the last two years there's been quite a lot of industrial unrest on university campuses um if this is how universities get away with treating their students or thinking they can people should really think about what working for universities is like i mean mm. can you know, anyone listening to this, imagine waking up tomorrow morning and your landlord has built a fence around your flat or your house. Like, you can't even possibly imagine it. You'd be outraged. And literally, these young people, these students who are paying to live in Manchester, you know, who feel they were lured back there under false pretenses and who have tragically seen somebody who lives amongst them die during this period, woke up to the erection of a fence. And when they tried to find out why it had been put there, they were told it was to keep them safe. Um, well, the last time I checked, fences don't deliver pastoral care, they don't deliver mental well-being, and they send a really bad message. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it, the, that is really interesting to me, actually, what you say about, you know, imagine then what it's like to work for university. Because when we've seen strikes on campuses over the last few years, whether it's to do with kind of pensions or whatever, more often than not students have been really supportive of staff in that right so it seems like it's really a two-way street there that quite often students and staff are on the same page yeah I think again I think universities massively underestimate um their students um in my experience and whether this is at college level or university level students fundamentally understand that staff working conditions a student's learning conditions. Mm -hmm. um, students become understandably very attached to their staff. You know, we see them all the time. We see them go through life-changing moments. You know, hopefully we shape that, you know, the, the adults that they fully grow into. And, you know, from my experience, they really hate it to see that their staff are treated in such a disgraceful way by their university. You know, so many staffing universities are employed on insecure contracts, and when they should be on proper contracts, on unsecure long-term contracts, it means that students um, sometimes lose the person who they were hoping would give them a reference or that they've come to really rely upon for, you know, other types of support or, or education. And yeah, you're right. When we've um, called strike action, students have been on picket lines with staff. Um, and I think students have always known um, that universities could potentially behave this way because occasionally they do see it. But I think, you know, the, the, the coronavirus response has really, has really laid this bare. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I, I remember from my student days, which is um, a good while ago now, <laughs> but, uh, I used to run our student newspaper and the um, the kind of support that we used to get from staff whenever we'd challenge the university on something was always really interesting. And I think that's when I first realised that kind of relationship between mm. students and staff and how often it was a yeah, supportive one between between each other. It's such an interesting it relationship. It is because, you know, staff end up coming to care for students 
a lot. And um, the thing that's really sort of upset me, to be honest, watching what's happened, because obviously we're we're getting everything through a screen, aren't we? And um, Mm -hmm. I know from when I used to work as a lecturer before I was elected, um, students worry a lot about complaining. Um, They really worry that if they make even a legitimate complaint about the university, that they might suffer some kind of penalty for it. Um, And it's completely unfounded. Um, In most cases, that's just not going to happen. Um, But rightly or wrongly, they kind of have this suspicion that it will. And, you know, I have seen students on social media who are desperately unhappy, who are really concerned and are too scared to complain about their university. During this entire you know, getting on for three month period now since UCU made its first call in August um, for universities not to kind of trigger a, a mass return to campus. I have been inundated with emails from parents who said that they tried contacting universities and just get no response um, from students. You know, obviously a lot of our conversation has been dominated by students who live on campus, but students who live in a multi-generational household and commute to university who said that they don't want to attend in person but they've been forced to and that they don't feel they're being listened to and um I think it's a real um I think the entire pandemic has been but I think it's a, a real demonstration that trade unions perform a civic duty and yeah obviously we have a duty to our members and we all work as educational professionals for the advancement and the betterment of our sector but it's clear in this moment that actually the general public have been looking to our union as the voice of reason as the data-driven voice of reason calling for sensible action um from this government yeah absolutely so I'm going to let you go in a minute, Joe, because I know you're very, very busy <laughs> and uh, I've already kept you for far longer than I promised I would. But let's just have a quick look forward over the next few weeks as we kind of run up to Christmas. What are you going to be focusing on and campaigning on as we as we look forward to, you know, um, well, yeah, like, like I say, Christmas and I guess coming into 2021? So in the immediate short term, um, we've got a lot of issues with um, education in general um, and the return to work um, or the return to more in-person activities, I should probably say. Um, We now are trying to focus on what what January will look like. Um, You know, we're already in this lockdown in England. Um, We're desperately still trying to get the government to take seriously the extent to which in-person activities are spreading the virus um, at a further education level, at college level. We think the government needs to be really investing money in community spaces where people who can't study at home because they don't have the space or, you know, there's just it's not a good environment where they can go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we can't we can't we can't stay like this until March. You know, it was very mm-hmm. different in the summer. People could maybe go outside into shared community spaces. It's not going to happen here particularly not, you know, if you're from a a low income household, you can't afford to be in a cold household if you can't put the heating on. Um, So we're going to be lobbying the government about what COVID safe community spaces could look like um, for people who are going to need them. And I think, you know, not just from a mental well-being perspective, but as I say, from an educational one. Um, So those kind of campaigning will continue um, trying to prevent um, wave two of a terrible mass return to campus in January um we we've got our hands full (laughs) it's going to be a difficult period and it's going to be busy I'm sure um but 
we'll uh, hopefully catch up with you in a, in a few weeks or a couple of months to see how it's going. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming on. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Podzone Country. I've been Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post-Westminster correspondent. And you can find this podcast wherever you usually find your podcast, whether that's iTunes, Spotify, Google, Amazon Music. And we would really, really love it if you could take the time to leave us a review, to subscribe, tell your friends, to find us on Twitter. You can follow me at Jerry underscore E underscore L underscore Scott. And we'll be back next week with another interesting guest for you. The Masters on Sky Sports now half price for six months. Witness all four unmissable days live from Augusta. It's one of the grand theatres of the sporting world. Oh, what a shot! You couldn't script this for a Hollywood movie. The best place to watch all four days of the Masters live. To join or upgrade and get Sky Sports half price for six months, search Sky Sports Golf. New sports customers only. Standard pricing applies after six months. Further terms apply.